And it's hard for me to see the chat when um, we're going. So Rachel, if it's urgent yeah. or art team. I Rachel, got the chat. I got the chat. Go ahead yeah. Or send me a text. But yeah, let's do. So yeah, introduce the, um, I'm again, my name is Carolyn Let's Young. I'm the, uh, it's doing the thing I hate. Sorry, right. I'll, I'll go ahead and do this while you worry about your tech. happy we're here like this is just the best we love this a magazines are a community um it's not just the work and art and writing that you do on your own it's um bringing it all together and seeing this really amazing cohesive whole um with art and writing and poems and all these things in conversation with each other and so that's really what tonight's about I am the um what am I I'm the editor-in-chief um and then Carol Ann Litster Young is our managing editor thanks for emceeing Carol Ann um can you raise your virtual hand art team and other exponent staff so we can um shout you out I saw Rosie Rachel will you tip your screen so we can see your whole face okay <laughs> All right. Rosie is on layout. Everything that comes out beautiful, um, like the magazine and like this amazing new printer we have. That's all Rosie. Um, Paige, are you out there? Rosie, are you out there? Paige is here. So Paige Turner is our art ambassador and has been the art editor here for like eight years. Just absolutely astonishing (laughs) the amount of work that she's done. I'm sure many of you know um, know her, which is great. Yeah, we see your, your screen now, Caroline. So this is great. And then when I turn it on, it says my screen sharing is paused, right? Yeah, it says loading. How strange. Does it say anything or no? Just says loading. Okay, let me switch to a different browser. Sorry, everybody. Okay, no worries. Um, While we're doing this, we'll just let you know. um, How many of you just like quick raise of hands have not been to a launch party yet before? Oh, great. Oh, this is so great. Okay, so the way we like to use the chat is while people are sharing, and it's going to be like, hot, fast, quick. Um, we like to use the chat to um, say people's words back to them, like words that really stood out to you, phrases and sentences that were really resonant. Use that space. And because I don't know about you, I, but every time I read my own work, I always get like a little bit nervous and I'm just like, what just happened? And then, you, and then they have a chance to like read like the post game of all that love. So, so yeah, we'll try to do that too. Oh, here we go. Fingers crossed. Come on. Yes, we got it. You're muted. Hi, sorry. Google Chrome for the win. Not Safari. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. So first up is the cover reveal. Here we go. Lot's Wife by Haley Labram Morrison. She wasn't able to be here tonight and Rachel will post in the chat her artist statement. And then we'll keep this up as Rachel shares the letter from the editor. So go ahead, Rachel. Yes. Um, and if, um, if someone can post in that um, that artist statement. So people can be reading that it's real salt from the salt lake on this art. It's incredible. Um, so I'm just going to read a brief portion of the letter. And as we know, the theme for this issue is called the art of losing. So that's what I've titled this essay. Um, Haley says she's here. 
Oh, Haley is here. Welcome. Sorry. We're so glad you're here. Haley, talk about your piece for up to two minutes. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I was like, wait, I am here. Um, Yeah. So this piece is is about Lot's wife, but it's also about me and women like me who have left their homes and also, you know, left maybe a lot of the ways that they grew up. And so that for me has meant looking back on a place that um, raised me and, and looking at it with new eyes, but also not um, taking the judgment or the the blame that comes with it because I I've taken it as more of like a um, maybe it was disobedient to some people, but for me, it was like making the right choice for me and owning that decision and reclaiming um, and looking back with new eyes and, and feeling proud of the, the accomplishments or the decisions that I've made that are my own. And so I am from Salt Lake city and grew up 45 minutes from the salt flats and grew up in a very, you know, um, orthodox Mormon household and really just have been thinking about that a lot more as I've grown up and matured and have lived away from Utah for 10 years now. And I went back to the Salt Flats last October and I I did a photo shoot there with uh, a friend of mine, another um, friend that grew up Mormon. And this is a photo, the photo is a reference of me turning and looking back on the Salt Flats. And um, I've been examining a lot of the stories of women from the Bible who, and Book of Mormon, who are briefly mentioned, but seem to always be at blame for something. And recognizing that that is, you know, a a written version by a man, interpreted by men. um, And how often should we really making all these assumptions about women and who they, what they're thinking on the inside or why they do what they do. Um, And so that's what this piece is about, that it's really up to the woman to make those decisions and to carry her reasons for herself. Thank you so much, Haley. I'm so glad you could be here tonight and yeah. read through the chat and enjoy the comments that we wrote back to you and Thank beautiful you. work. Thank you. Yeah. And then we'll keep this image up as Rachel reads um, part of the letter from the editor. That's so beautiful. I, we're so excited about this cover and just hearing yeah, more story behind it. Thank you. So this essay is called The Art of Losing. I'm just going to read a a short little frame. A few years ago, I found myself driving alone toward the desert for a solo camping trip outside of Zion National Park. Who was that self without a plan or a travel companion? And what was she up to? I don't know that I can answer any better now than I could at that moment. With both hands on the hot steering wheel, watching the white lines of the unbending road whoosh under the tires I kept thinking of the word annihilated. I felt as though my whole comforting sense of self, my routines, my identities, my notions of safety, my beliefs and stories, my coping mechanisms, my career, my ego, and more were tearing away as fast as those lines flying under the car. Fear nipped at my heels while figurative and very real death had chased me here. Who am I? I kept asking myself and the red rock cliffs, what is left? What is real? I am a person driving a car. That felt as far as I could go, as honest as I could answer. One of my favorite poets, Elizabeth Bishop, wrote that the art of losing isn't hard to master. Her work, Grappling with Grief, inspired the theme for this issue. 
This issue offers a mosaic of truth as writers and artists wrestle with this art of losing. There is no escape from heartbreak. Welcome to mortality. But we do have the choice to observe loss head on without looking the other way or imagining ourselves immune. The brave contributors of this issue model how to sit with this universal truth. In sharing their experiences, they invite us to witness our own with a little bit more courage, compassion, and reverence. Beautiful. Thank you, Rachel. Okay, the show goes on. Oh, first off, we will hear from Mayor Monson with Through Glass Darkly. So just to clarify, do you you want me to read either this piece or the poem? So you choose whichever one you want to do first. Yeah. And I can put the but title. I'm going to do both? You yep. want a piece from both. Or pick okay. whichever one if, you want. If you want to. Up to you. Yeah, I'm totally game. I just wasn't sure what you wanted. Yeah. I'll start with uh, the poem. Okay. Perfect. Six years after. Ovaries, lymph nodes, uterus, omentum. Each womanectomy plunged me in deep water beneath stitched up skin. What's left of me is still here on the shore, breathing. Old waves of cancer sparkle like gems, stained glass earth under my feet. I am goddess with belly as empty as a ghost, giving birth to fresh bundles of sentences on the pregnant silence of the page. Sacred cargo I pull out of my throat, cradle and rock into the world to tell the underground story of me. A religion, this bellowing of my light. I blow it into musty corners, gather gold from scarred crevices, watch it color my world. Okay, this is just a piece from my Sabbath pastoral called Through a Glass Darkly. God has shifted from being an image of heavenly parents who are way out there and separate from me to more of a presence that is always right here, right now, whether I'm aware of it or not. Now it looks to me like we live in a God-soaked world, that there is nowhere God is not. John tells us God is light. Abinadi teaches this light is endless and can never be darkened. The Doctrine and Covenants explains this light fills the immensity of space, that it's in all things and gives life to all things. In other words, everything and everyone is God's light in disguise. I have found no more potent healing in times of depression or insecurity than to touch this reality, that I am part of God's light and belong to it, that I have a very real divine nature beneath my crazy human one, an immutable presence within that is already made of love peace, resilience, creativity, and wisdom. Elder Anderson called it our perfect spiritual DNA. St. Teresa of Avila called it a castle made exclusively of diamond. Christ called it the kingdom of God. Glimpsing this truth has helped me loosen my grip on all my stories about what's wrong with me. Exploring the light within has given me far more leverage to grow than endlessly trying to get rid of all my faults. In my experience of working with myself and others, what stops us from progressing is not that we're not good enough, but that we do not yet understand just how profoundly good we are. On the other side of this, I've fallen in love with a prayer 
by a Benedictine nun named Macrina Wiederker. Quote, oh God, help me believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is, unquote. Thank you so much. Beautiful, inspiring words. And I'm excited for everyone to read the rest of it in the magazine. And I also love getting to hear the poems by the poets, read by the poets. Next up, we have Allison Pingree, who did the flannel board um, with Living with Ambiguous Loss. And then Allison also had a, um, a slide she wanted to share. So go ahead, Allison. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, this piece, this lesson or this flannel board is based on a workshop that I had the privilege of giving at the Exponent Retreat last fall. I... Um, want to dive into what to me is a an amazing contribution from this woman here Pauline Boss who wrote these different books um the flannel board has several um extensive quotes from her and um describes six practices that can help us live manage uh, ambiguous loss that's the overview, and I'm not just going to read one portion of the of the lesson of the flannel board, um, and you can take it from there. After just after describing my own experiences with some ambiguous losses in my life, I um, what makes all three of these experiences especially painful is that they involve the unsettling blend of presence and absence in what psychologist Pauline Boss calls ambiguous losses. As the book cover description for ambiguous loss, learning to live with unresolved grief explains, when a loved one dies, we mourn our loss. We take comfort in the rituals that mark the passing and we turn to those around us for support. But what happens when there is no closure? When a family member or a friend who may still be alive is lost to us? nonetheless. How, for example, does the mother whose soldier son is missing in action, or the family of an Alzheimer's patient who is suffering from severe dementia, deal with the uncertainty surrounding this kind of loss? And Boss describes two types of ambiguous loss, as you can see here, physical absence, but psychological presence, and this could be someone who is in, uh, missing someone who is incarcerated or lost at war. It could be a miscarriage. It could be uh, because of an adoption. Then the other is psychological absence with physical presence, which could be the person with dementia or someone with a traumatic brain injury. Two chapter titles in the book, Ambiguous Loss, encapsulate this agonizing state of limbo so one chapter is called Leaving Without Goodbye, and the other is Goodbye Without Leaving. Moreover, Boss asserts that of all the losses experienced in personal relationships, ambiguous loss is the most devastating because it remains unclear, indeterminate. People hunger for certainty. Even sure knowledge of death is more welcome than a continuation of doubt. And as she describes further about why it's so painful. Um, here are a few final thoughts. Um, and I'm hoping this is just a kind of teaser to get you to explore all of the, all of the practices that, that uh, she 
shares and that I outline here. The uncertainty, excuse me, Boss explicates further that the damage, sorry, Boss explicates further the damage that such, such loss can inflict, not because of flaws in the psyches of those experiencing it, but because of situations beyond their control that block the coping and grieving processes. This blockage leaves people baffled and immobilized by not knowing how to make sense of the situation. They can't problem solve because they don't yet know whether the problem is final or temporary. If uncertainty continues, families often respond with absolutes, either acting as if the person is completely gone or denying that anything has changed. Neither is satisfactory. And then a final passage, this uncertainty can not only paralyze or force absolutes on those experiencing ambiguous loss, it is also less visible to potential communities of support. People are denied the symbolic rituals that ordinarily support a clear loss, such as a funeral after death in the family. There's little validation of what they are experiencing and feeling. Not surprisingly, such limbo and isolation can take a significant toll. Because ambiguous loss is a loss that goes on and on, those who experience it become physically and emotionally exhausted. And then I add, as a member of my Alzheimer's caregiver support group described, Alzheimer's is like a funeral that never ends. So um, thank you for the invitation to expand on my workshop through this flannel board. And I hope that what uh, I've been able to do to try to translate and give context for Boss's work is is helpful. Thank you so much, Allison. I was able to attend the workshop. It was so lovely and just these additional resources. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next up, we have the interview with Tori Christensen, who is our artist feature. And then, um, so Tori, I have your, I think it was four images. So let me know when you're ready for each one. Okay, I'm ready. So, so, so. oh, one second. Okay. We're both on here. Okay. So um, I'm an artist. Uh, I have been my whole life, but really what pushed me into like pursuing arts more rigorously was my little brother. Um, When he lost his sight, he was seven and I was 11 and I had a really hard time processing it. I felt like I had lost my brother altogether. I felt like, which seems selfish and it felt selfish at the time, even now feels embarrassing to admit, but I felt like I didn't have my same brother anymore. Like my brother had died and, um, that isn't the case. (laughs) Um, when you, when someone you love loses something, they gain new things too. And if you ignore those new things, then you lose the chance to miss out. Like you miss out on the chance to love someone new. So I decided to work um, my art in ways that my brother could um, experience. So I started doing fiber arts that's tactile. So that way it could be felt, touched, seen by everybody in different, um, with different abilities, whether you're blind or visually impaired or sighted. Um, you can experience this art in a certain way that uh, can speak to you. So I did this show about Pikachu because my little brother loves Pikachu so much. So um, this was all um, inspired by his eyesight degenerating. Um, So 
that is what this is about. Um, we can go to the next slide now. This is my little brother feeling the artwork for the first time. Um, it was really moving seeing him just bounce up and down, being so excited. And um, when I was making the art, I made these goggles that simulate my brother's sight. So he can see 2,800 um, out of this part of his eye and then just black and whites out of this part. So I looked at the picture of Pikachu and Ash Ketchum through his sight, something that simulated his vision, and it was really beautiful. And so to see him experience what I got to see of his, it was just this mutual sharing that was really bonding. Um, you can go to the next one. So I do gardens. That's what I usually do is just different types of gardens. But the Pikachu show really pushed me outside of the box. I've gone back to making some gardens. I've gone back to making some brightly colored things because Paul can see the high contrast of the bright colors against the dark. So I added in the blacks in the background and stuff. So that's been really fun. And then another thing that I got to do, um, if you go to the next slide, um, is some braille pottery. So I've been trying to find ways to make not only something touchable, but something legible. Um, and this is a poem on the left about um, feeling the color purple and how it feels when you feel sad and happy all at once and it mixes into the color purple. And that's by um, Vuong Nu. And so that's something that's really special to me because you can feel colors, you can experience things in different ways. So that's really what's brought me to finding poetry, incorporating it legibly in Braille and um, different works that uh, are accessible to everyone. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> it's a coffee mug and it says coffee mug on it. <laughs> oh, awesome. Sorry, we are out of time. Oh Thank yeah, I'm so so much. And I hope you enjoy the chat too, with all the beautiful things that people shared. Okay, next up we have Britta Adams who's reading a poem. Go ahead, Britta. Is Britta here tonight or muted? Sorry, I think I was muted. Okay, good. Welcome. Glad you're here. Um thank you. <laughs> So three years ago, I was working at the Joseph Smith Papers Project at the Church History Library in Salt Lake City. And I was working as a full-time research assistant. And um, while I was doing that work, I found myself just writing poems about all of the people that I was learning about and writing about. So this is one of them. Um, Emily Dow Partridge Young. It's easier, I think, to see substance in silence and ghosts than in lions and hosts. After all, bees do not relate with words or touch, but with work and minutes and hours and days passed away. Threads in a quilt stand firm for the central fibers and fray at the edges, whispered weakness only so he could not see. Quiet can be peace when there's no one left to talk to or love. No more mountainous roars, heart hunger pangs, or trickling dried up streams. Knobby fingers and withered skin do not crave warmth after aging in so much cold and starvation. Instead, they find rest in the lull 
and comfort in the empty. Things are as they always have been. So after years and years and years alone, I find my life without help meet is silent and sweet. Thank you so much, Britta. Okay, next up we have Fiona Phillips. Um, Fiona, you have the next slide is your art. Would you rather talk about your art or read the poem first? You can um, I'll just talk about the art for a minute. Okay, perfect. Go ahead. So um, I started a, a, a body of work um, after my mother passed away. And I went through her old photographs and and I was so struck by how beautiful she was when she was first married. And and then I started looking and comparing um, her life to mine when we were at similar ages and trying to make connections that I didn't know were there previously. Um, and it led me to um, all kinds of different directions. And, and this painting is... is uh, kind of inspired by part of that and the poem is especially um i think um being lonely is is a very difficult burden to carry and um i think probably all of us have felt lonely at some point in time um and so that's what this painting is it's maybe a, a little light-hearted um look at loneliness perhaps um with the frogs they kind of to me, lightened it a little bit and uh, added a little bit of an element of fun. But uh, so I'm going to read the poem and, and then I'll just kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, it's called Cooking for One. Aloneness is tangible. It shrugs right up against you and presses against your skin. It smells cold and aches. Heat up the oven. Stir your sweet sauces. Put on your flowered dress, earrings, and bracelet. Set a pretty table, mother's china, and goblets. Serve yourself first. There is space for a friend. So this is um, this poem is uh, inspired, at least the ending of it, by what my mother would have said to me if I was feeling sorry for myself. Is like get up and do something, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I, I, her voice is always in my ear, I think. Um, and it inspires me and it helps me to, to um, look at life in another way. Um, life is hard. And I think it's difficult um, to cope with many of the challenges that we face today. But there's beauty around us, too. And I look for beauty in everything. Um, even loneliness can have beauty in it from time to time. I believe in that. I believe that um, that we do need to take care of ourselves and that um, we can do that. We can be strong and beautiful all at the same time. Thank you so much, Fiona. Love it. And I'm excited for you to read through the chat and see the beautiful things people shared. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have um, two by Louise Hamill. So you can decide if you want your poetry first or your essay first. Which would you prefer, Louise? Um, probably the other one, because I don't have the being the widow printed up <laughs> in front of me. That's embarrassing. 
Okay, so gift redemption. I can recount 30 years of disappointing gifts from my husband. He simply had no clue. There was the electric can opener for our anniversary, a garage parking sign, the claustrophobic footed robe that tripped me when I walked. I was forewarned by my new mother-in-law when she begged me to take over buying the family gifts from him. It got to the point that my husband would automatically include the sales receipts with his gifts, knowing I would likely want to return or exchange them. I felt awful doing so, but could fill only so many drawers with unwanted stuff. His last gift, though, redeemed him forever. He was in late-stage cancer, homebound. As he spent his days dozing in his recliner, I spent mine dispensing a frightening array of medications. Our anniversary approached, and he fretted about finding a gift. Even when he excuse me, even then he wanted to try again. But more time with him was all I wanted, and that was something he didn't have. Write me a letter, I proposed, a handwritten love letter. One month later, he passed away in my arms on the hospital bed that had replaced the recliner. His letter, rich in love and gratitude, is the perfect gift I have opened again and again. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I wasn't on mute. And then do you, are you able to pull up your um, poem or do you want me to email it to you? What would be helpful? Um, or we can keep going. You decide. Let's, let's keep going. Um, I had forgotten I had indicated both. So let's no just problem. move ahead. Okay. Thank you so much, Lise. Thank sure. you. Lise, beautiful. Next up, we have um, Anne Pimentel. Let's go ahead, Anne. Okay, um, this is about my father. Um, and I'm emotional from Louise, sorry. Um, six months to live, that was the diagnosis my dad received on July 2nd, 2012. He had retired just three days earlier from his job as an elementary school principal. Our whole family was together to celebrate his retirement after 40 years of service. Dad was experiencing some back pain that weekend, so he went to get checked out. Unfortunately, they found that he had lung cancer and it had spread, spread throughout his body and into his bones, stage four. We were all in shock. My dad, the man I had looked up to as my hero, my entire life was a little bit broken. That night as my sisters and I huddled together in prayer, I could feel the imminent loss starting to creep in. Irrational thoughts began to fill my mind. Even though I had just had a baby six months earlier, I wondered if I should hurry and have one more. Maybe my dad would live long enough to get to meet one more grandchild before he died. Should I move my family closer to my parents? Would dad make it to Christmas? Our family had bordered a roller coaster of emotions and had just gone over the first big drop. Um, I'll skip ahead a little bit. It turns out those questions would hang over me and weigh on my heart for the next 10 years of my life. 
My dad defied all the odds and doctor's diagnoses. He sailed past the first diagnosis and felt relatively well. The roller coaster had started to climb back up and things were leveling out. Since I didn't live in the same state as he did, the grief and impact on his illness wasn't something I had to deal with every day. Mom called me with updates, but once I hung up, I could go back to my busy life. I continue talking about the 10 years of my dad's suffering, um, and I'll just jump down to the end. So he passed away last June, um, and I say at the end, it was confusing to feel so much relief and joy after nearly 10 years of worry and sorrow. Dad wasn't suffering any longer. My mom was finally relieved of her heavy role as caretaker, but the pain isn't gone. The heartache still jumps out at me more often than I thought it would at this point. We've been let off the roller coaster of my dad's illness, but we got strapped right into the roller coaster of grief. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, thank you. Again, I'm so excited for everyone to be able to get to read the full essay and um, thank you. Okay, next up we have Waiting by Lisa Turley Smith. Go ahead, Lisa, when you're ready. Um, yeah, so I'll just be reading some excerpts from my essay. Two and a half years ago, my mother-in-law found out she had stage four metastatic breast cancer. We learned the cancer was terminal, but her prognosis was uncertain. But the latest studies show that 80% of women die within five years of their diagnosis. But new treatments are still coming out that can prolong life. But a tumor could appear in a vital organ at any time but she was only 50 and otherwise in good health. But the cancer and the treatment would weaken her body to other diseases. There were a lot of buts and there was nothing to do except wait and see. We were devastated. I was grieving a loss that hadn't happened yet. I was grieving that she would someday at a time unknown not be here to do these things with us. But isn't that true for everyone? Last September, my midwife told me at an ultrasound appointment that the embryo inside me wasn't growing and that my pregnancy would almost certainly result in a miscarriage. She told me that due to the current legal landscape, there was nothing more they could do for me at that time. She told me to wait for two weeks to see if I would miscarry on my own without, without medical intervention. I woke up every day. Sorry. <clears throat> All right, okay. Um, I woke up every day still feeling useless for trimester symptoms, wondering if that would be the day I would lose the pregnancy. Exactly two weeks after the ultrasound, I did. Pain tore through my body as it expelled the blood and tissue. My midwife had told me to come to the hospital if I was feeling lightheaded. I briefly blacked out somewhere around hour two, but couldn't pull myself together enough to make it to the car. I stayed in the tub and watched the possibility of the baby wash down the drain. Then it was over. The waiting, the pain, all of it. I scrubbed the blood out of the white linoleum. If you had asked me before the cancer diagnosis, if I ever expected to live with my in-laws, I would have said what I imagine anyone would have said. 
maybe when they're old and need some extra help, will probably be at least in our 60s, you know, if it makes sense. I am 27 and nothing makes sense. Last February, they found a mass in my mother-in-law's lungs. If it was cancerous, it meant the treatment had stopped working and the end was that much closer. They took a biopsy and sent it to a lab for processing and scheduled an appointment with her to discuss the results. She asked me to come with her to the appointment and put me in charge of asking follow-up questions and taking notes. So I came, fidgeting with my notebook and thinking about how many more times I would analyze this sterile hospital smell. Her doctor came in and told us the mass was benign. She is only as close to death as before they found it, whatever that means. Later, I sat with her as a medical resident and told us that the amputation of her toe was the only viable option due to the infection. He reassured us, though, that it wouldn't be the whole toe, just up to the first joint. I held her as she cried, and then we laughed. Losing half of your big toe is as comical as it is tragic. Simultaneously, a small thing and a big thing. Another loss as we, as we wait for the next, and as I continue to wait to lose her, too. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, I, I'm really emotional. I'm feeling just deep anger and sadness. Um, I put this in the chat, but I want to make it public of um, the loss that we have for female reproductive rights. I'm really angry and sad. So I'm sorry you had to go through that while you were in Utah. Okay, next up we have Sarah Perkins with the essay Cantus Firmus. Go ahead, Sarah, when you're ready. All right. <clears throat> a month after my youngest was born, I passed my dissertation prospectus to study 20th century literature and theology, touching the book of Job. I breastfed him through my defense. Two months later, social workers from the Department of Children and Families drove away with my kids locked in the backseat of their car at 2.30 on a Saturday morning. They gave no indication of where they were going or when I would see my boys again. There had been a rib fracture, roughly the size of a thumbprint, probably caused by my mother-in-law when she squeezed the baby to prevent a fall after nearly dropping him. He screamed, but then calmed, so she didn't think to tell us. Since we didn't have any suitable explanation for the injury, the doctors called it a non-accidental trauma, indicative of abuse, so they sent the police. Certain something illegal must be happening, we recorded the removal on our phones. You can hear about the lack of paperwork, our desperate questions about how they would feed our two highly allergic children. Our youngest was exclusively breastfed at the time and I had been on a restricted diet to accommodate his sensitivities. At the end, you hear my gasping sobs. I was embarrassed by it the first time we watched the video. I wished I had stopped recording before I broke down into my neighbor's arms. But mostly what you hear is Clarence, our three-year-old. When it was clear we either give up our kids or allow the police to take them at gunpoint, I was tasked with waking the boys and surrendering them into the social worker's car with a change of clothes, diapers, and a bag of breast milk. I woke Clarence as gently as I could, given the circumstances. I didn't want my boy to be afraid. It didn't work. His screams filled the recording as they spilled out into the street that night. I don't want to go. Don't make me go. Not in that car. Not by myself. Come with me, mommy, daddy. They shut the door and the boys were gone. One of the great evils 20th century thinkers observe in the story of Job is the denouement of retributive restoration. Having proven himself innocent of any moral failings that would warrant inflicted suffering, 
God restores to Job all that was lost. His home was destroyed. God gives him a new one. Job's lands were devastated. God grants him twice as many. His livestock perished. God gives him a herd twice as large. Job's children died. God replaces them times two. It is in this point, plot point that the resolution takes a turn to the absurd, or depending on who's writing, the grotesque. As anti-theodicists of 20th century were quick to condemn, and as is, is experientially irrevocably true, the tragedy of losing one child is not compensated for in the birth of another. The joy of the second family does not redeem the unmitigated devastation of losing the first. But it's a grotesque substitution we attempt every day. Each year, the more than 600,000 children find themselves in foster care in the U.S. Around 600 more are added every day, a bit more than 200,000 a year. Of these, 16% are taken for charges of physical or sexual abuse. The other 84% are for neglect, an amorphous term usually synonymous to conditions of poverty. The family can't afford a coat or daycare or food or a two-bedroom or a medical procedure. No matter the cause, with each removal, a first family perishes. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, I I was familiar with your story through your relative um, tweeting about it and re- heard about it last summer. I was so horrified. And so when we got your essay, I was like, oh, so really grateful that you can share more of your story. And um, I'm so sorry for that experience. Yeah. Ah. United States. Okay, Brinley Lazar, this is the art that is paired with the piece. So Brinley, go ahead. Oh my gosh, this has been so heavy. Beautiful, but so heavy. It's so hard to talk after all of that. Um, so this was a piece that I created um, to capture the experience that I had following the loss of my mom a couple years ago. Um, we had a really complicated relationship and the grieving has been equally complicated. Um, so, um, I had this, you know, I I tried to convey this sense of almost like being underwater, drowning, chaos, um, rage, pain. I mean, there was just so much darkness in the experience. And I feel like I'm at a point now where I'm beginning to come out and see the light. Um, but there was a really messy middle in there. Um, and I think we do a pretty bad job in our society in general, but also within the church about acknowledging the messy middle and leaving space for it. Um, people are very uncomfortable with it. So I think we like to skip over that part. Um, but I, I truly believe that to get to the other side, you have to go through the, the depths, um, and the chaos and the grief. And, you know, I, I think of like caterpillars turning into butterflies, they literally like disintegrate themselves before they turn into something beautiful. And I think that, grief and loss are the same way. Um, you really fall apart before you are put back together as a different, hopefully stronger, wiser person. So that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Next up, we have an um, essay by Natasha Rogers, Shoulder Kisses. Go ahead, Natasha, when you're ready. I need to test one. Nope. Okay. Thank you. Um, so this is, um, I lost a foster child a while ago. Um, and I um, was hoping in the writing of this essay, I would come to like the end, you know, when I finished my uh, essay, but um, that's the thing with loss is um, there's no, there's no end. So um, I'm going to read the end of my um, essay. Where is the art in all this loss? When I think of art, I think of the creation of beauty and feeling. However, where is the beauty in loss when it is just blank, missing, empty? The poet Ada Limon said that poetry is not just words. It is also the spaces and pauses, all that white paper where no words are. She called it the silence. She said that the page where no words can fill is part of the poetry. Perhaps here lies the art of losing the white space that can't be filled in life, the silence. Our last family photo was taken in 2017. It has him and younger versions of my four other children. He sits on my hip and his nose is touching mine while my other children lean their little bodies on my and my husband's legs. That moment of art, of family create, sorry, a family creation and meaning is dusty and outdated, untouched. He is no longer that baby boy and my children no longer inhabit those small bodies and we are no longer a family of seven. However, I've been too afraid to take a family photo without him in it. I've been too afraid of the silence, the space where he no longer is. But maybe that is how I create the art of losing him. We take a family photo without him in it. We accept this life and let the space where he isn't be part of our story. That is what I hope for him, that he is creating a life with the spaces of loss. His life is a poem. And even if he never, sorry, and even if he never knows to remember his foster family, we are still inside of him. It is invisible, but our love runs through his veins and his love runs through ours. For months after I lost him, I was terrified of the grief, thinking it wasn't mine, thinking he wasn't mine. But it is, and he was. That space shaped like shoulder kisses and all of the moments we built together are mine. It's all inside of me, and all that love is worth the loss. Perhaps the art of losing is the space where we once were in life and still are within the fibers of each other. Thank you so much, Natasha. Okay, so this art is paired with Natasha's piece. Cindy, um, do you want to speak for a moment, or do you want to suggest share it and keep going? Let, let me know. But Cindy Lewis Clark is the artist. Humility is the root of strength. Oh, I can just tell about it. This, um, I'm a mom, and as a mom, I feel like sometimes I have to hold my house together, and the burden rests on my shoulders, and it's really hard. And so, in this painting, uh, the woman there is shouldering a home, but because she's rooted in humility, and I have roots coming down on the bottom. Um, she is acknowledging that that burden isn't just really hers. It's also um, upheld from above and I have strings going up to the sky. And to me, humility means recognizing the hand of God in all things. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Cindy. 
Next up, we have Triumph by Melissa Malcolm King. Go ahead, Melissa, when you're ready. Triumph. There was a time in my life when loss signified the absence of something profound, a shame that ate away at my soul, piece by piece, with each devastating decision to cram myself cracks of conformity. This error in thinking led to many dis misplaced actions and dysfunctional relationships with myself in an intense mourning for a lack of authenticity. This loss etched away at, at me like an untreated oozing bed sore that seeped into every pore of my soul, slowly killing me. I mourned the loss of the person that society and family wanted me to be. I mourned the loss of community ripped away when I publicly embraced my inner vulnerabilities. As a result, I left pieces of myself behind, around, under, and hidden beneath self-pity and self-loathing. Drowning in this loss that answered to many names, including denial, depression, and disgust. Loss became my best friend and my worst enemy, providing both a comfort zone and a place with thorns of disconnection piercing me. I was deceived into believing that my value stemmed from my ability to switch from one crap mask to another, presenting a distorted version of myself to appease others. I became the most outstanding actor on the world stage, hiding behind my mask, dutifully memorizing the script of code switching, all the while while trying so desperately to never let anyone see my lifelong mourning. I became such a skilled actor that I convinced myself I was indeed each of these personas I had to play to survive. The mask of assimilation presented a whitewashed version of myself with iron pressed hair and gentle, non-threatening voice. The cover of my straight-passing self engaged in pretend relationships and, and costumes that led to societal acceptance. The mask of perfectionism allowed me the most outstanding performance as it hid my tears, self-doubt, and self-loathing. These masks covered wounds but didn't provide healing until I could remove them and put them down piece by piece. In time, I began to know that loss was not a deficit or deviant factor, but the most significant asset I could ever receive in my journey. This choice to end my distorted roadshow didn't come in a single moment or life-altering event, but from examples of others like me who also find themselves in the margins. People who come into the most authentic spaces by letting go of shame and embracing joy. These experiences led me to pull apart my intersectional mask one at a time and take my rightful role with pride only made possible by loss. Embracing loss led me to a place of freedom when I realized I was worthy to, enough to let go of toxic relationships, beginning with how I viewed myself. This loss led me to let go of the expectation of perfection and instead celebrate all my progress on the journey. Loss empowered me to become an extraordinary advocate for the marginalized as I realized that healing my wounds would lead to endless opportunities to give others the courage to do the same. This loss not only brought me to the promised land, but it, had all, but it has also brought me new promises of hope and restoration that continue to land on me. Letting go also means greater community, connection, and peace. 
The most sacred legacy I can leave is not in the awards I have won, the degrees I have earned, or the diverse titles that have been bestowed upon me. My legacy comes from my ability to embrace loss, delight in its refining power, and welcome weakness as an opportunity to gain experience and share my resilience with the world. I do not regret what I had to put down or let go because it prepared me for everything I needed for my long journey ahead, knowing that loss is but a few steps behind me, cheering me on, and at the same time, begging me to slow down among the voices of society that expect my defeat. I keep moving forward toward the places that were mine all along, knowing that I may stumble and succumb to my self-doubt. But I keep moving with my head held high with the wind of change on my face, determined to never go back to where I started, but continue to but to continue living a life as a trailblazer. I was never lost along the way, but reclaimed the most beautiful and sacred parts of me unapologetically. I call that victory. Beautiful. Thank you, Melissa. I'm really excited for people got to hear it and then excited for people to be able to read it. Thank you. Okay. Um, Next up, we have Considering by Lauren Palmer Merrill. It's um, paired with a different essay, but that speaker wasn't able to come tonight. So go ahead, Lauren, when you're ready. Thanks. I have to pick the least noisy spot with the air conditioners on, you know, it's a scorcher in Boston today. Oh. Um, so this photograph, I took this at a museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in the Raphael room, which is not my favorite you know, part of the museum. I love to find the Impressionist paintings in the bright rooms. And it's kind of a dark, musty room. And I noticed this curtain that just looked really out of place. Like it has really heavy red brocade draperies. And this was this light thing that really attracted me. So I went over and I took some photos of it. Um, and I'm really drawn to sign curves in nature and in art. And curtains kind of hang in sign curves. And that's something that has always, I think, troubled me um, metaphorically for my life because I have, I come from a family with very high expectations, very lofty um, trajectories for everybody. We all have to be the best all the time. And I remember spending a lot of time in my 20s wrestling with the fact that I couldn't just keep going on the straight upward path that everyone wanted me to be on. And I felt like my energy levels and my faith and my adherence to the ideals that other people had was always fluctuating like a sine curve. And I just thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could just cut it out and I could just go on that upward trajectory that I was supposed to be on. Um, so this piece, you know, it, it speaks a lot to contrast of, you know, the contrast between light and dark and freedom and feeling held back, but also uh, embracing that and embracing the sign curve and just saying, you know what, this is my path and I've got to be on it. So that's that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I love the Isabel Gardner Museum. So glad you're there. Okay, next up, we have Lost Things by Lisa Van Orman Hadley. My old name, friend. So glad you're here. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna. I have ADHD, so I'm gonna set my visual timer. 
All right. Lost things. We've lost teeth for one thing, 160 baby teeth among us, not counting wisdom teeth. Some of them fell out easily. When they didn't, my father gave us two options, the pliers or the door. Each choice inflicted its own particular kind of pain. The pliers bore a pain of certainty, the pain of knowing that once they were clamped down tight, the tooth would come out carefully, slowly, achingly. The door held a pain of surprise. My father would tie one end of a piece of string to the tooth and then tie the other end to a door handle. Then he would pretend to slam the door several times until he finally did it for real and the tooth would go with it. If we were lucky, the suddenness of it all would override any actual pain. I, thankfully, lost my first tooth at six while eating an apple in my parents' bedroom. We've lost 28 wisdom teeth collectively. Mine never grew in, and I felt that I lost out on the experience of missing school, watching movies, and eating popsicles all day long. My father suggested that I am a more evolved species, outgrowing the need for wisdom teeth altogether, which is strange because my father says he doesn't believe in evolution. His wisdom teeth were yanked out by the military when he was in his mid-twenties. He was given no anesthesia. My father lost part of his right index finger on the bandsaw in the garage while making us a Barbie house one Christmas, and then paraded the finger in front of my mother, who fainted. Sarah, after winning the junior Miss pageant, lost the Miss Florida pageant. We lost at least five cats and three dogs. We've lost loved ones to cancer, drugs, dementia, accidents. We once lost a woman we loved to murder. When we were kids, my mother lost her purse at least once a day. We were often late for things because of it. She would say frantically, kids, quick, I'll give a quarter to whoever finds my purse. And then we would run off, pushing each other out of the way so we could get to the purse first. We would finally find it tucked away in some messy corner of the kitchen or caged beneath an inverted laundry basket. At some point, we got smart and started hiding the purse so we could get a quarter. My mother, to my knowledge, never found out. We've lost over the years the desire to hurt one another, compete for attention, be right all the time. We've lost weight. Jimmy lost it before every wrestling match. Amy and Sarah lost it in high school by sucking on ice cubes when they were hungry. My mother lost it by counting calories and eating carrots. My mother, Sarah, and Amy lost it quickly after their babies came, fitting into their old jeans the week after they got home from the hospital. Since reaching adulthood, I've gained as much weight as I've lost. We've lost four pregnancies. I think my time's up, so I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, and Lisa, we'll do a plug for Lisa's book. Lisa has a book called Irreversible Things. People haven't heard of it or read it. Um, and this, that essay is one of the stories within it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so sorry, I'm needing to reset. I know it's a past time, but we have um, a few more people that we wanted to um, really, like, hey, you're here. Do you want to speak? So next up is going to be Josie. Um, oh, hold on. Sorry, Josie, Josiana Peterson. Give me one moment as I'm being tech challenged per usual. Give me a sec. I got to reset something. All right. Um, thank you. Shout out to Rosie Sirago for being my background tech. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and so Josie, as soon as I get this loaded up, we will have you go ahead. 
Go ahead, Josie. Hi, sorry, I'm at my brother's house. Um, and I couldn't find a light, so I had to move. I just wanted to say really quick um, that I'm really grateful um, for everybody sharing tonight. Um, my dad actually passed away two days ago, and so it's been really comforting to hear everybody sharing their experiences with grief. And so I'm just going to read um, just the beginning of my piece. I'll, I'll read the happy part. <laughs> so this is called Some Beginnings. Um, in the beginning, it was Easter, and I ate so much chocolate that I puked. I came to consciousness and saw for the first time that the world wasn't as always as sweet as it appeared to me, or maybe it was too sweet. And God said, let there be puke, and there was puke. And God saw the puke and knew that it was good, because there must be opposition in all things, and I must know the bitter in order to appreciate the sweet, and so forth. But I was four years old, and I did not know or care about any of that. All I knew was that I loved dresses, and I loved my mom, and I loved, and I thought I loved chocolate, but now I wasn't so sure, because my belly hurt, and I felt sick. And God called me Josie, and he called my brother John, but he didn't really do that. My mom did. And God divided the heaven and the earth when he divided my mother's eggs and made us. Except he didn't do that because we're fraternal twins and that's not how that works. How many times will I have to explain that boy-girl twins can't be identical? Anyhow, whatever the process, we made it here. At some point, God carved the valley out just for me. Or maybe the glaciers melted on their own, carving the painfully beautiful mountain peaks and filling the lakes and reservoirs and rivers all around me in Montana. Whoever or whatever it was that crafted my home did a wonderful job. And I still think that they did it for me. And I think I'll just stop there. Thanks for squeezing me in. I'm really grateful for all of you. I know I already said that, but I felt like saying it again. <laughs> Thank you for being open with us and sharing, sharing your loss with us, Josie, sending so much love and peace to get there. Um, we have two more people who are sneaking in too, um, Amy Jurgensen and Kirsten Alley. Carver. So let me reset the slideshow. Give me a moment. But Amy, if you want to get ready to read, um, would you be interested in that tonight? Yes, awesome. please. Let me, yeah, let me reset the slideshow, but you can go ahead and get started. Yeah, it's so great. Just, just thank you, everyone. I love seeing the faces and hearing your voices behind these stories and these art pieces. There's just something just incredibly potent about tonight. So thank you. So mm -hmm. go ahead. Thank you. I'm trying to think about where to start um I've had more than I, I've had a few losses around my around the block and I didn't want to I didn't have anything to say about that so I didn't try to be something I wasn't but um this summer okay I have a six-year-old who is a cross between Marilyn Monroe Machiavelli and Mother Teresa okay mm -hmm. She's big and energetic and all over the place. And I taught her how to play Mancala so that we could sit down and she wouldn't be running around for at least five to seven minutes. Like, this was something hopefully useful. But you have to understand who my daughter is to understand that she's the complete opposite of me. Like, if she didn't look so much like me, and if I hadn't actually been there at the hospital or actually dropped her in my bathroom, but that's another story. Um, you would just be curious, like, what? How did this happen? But I wrote about playing Mancala with my daughter. 
and she's six and we have trophies and she bounces around and sometimes she's picking up the pieces so slowly so wakingly like they like she has chopsticks and other times she's swooping them up and trying to fling them all over the place and then she's like gesturing like a grand princess like i'm a princess mommy and i'm like hey okay sure great what do i do to me the thing that i got from it is that it's the experience for her. I can watch her and see how she loses the game so completely, so gracefully, so happily, because it's not about the game. Um, we are equal in the sense that we win something valuable to us each time we play. My daughter is there to win an experience of sensation of touching and hearing the clank of the pellets when dropping them into the holes. My daughter wins an experience of having her mother's undivided attention, or maybe a captive audience. Sometimes it's hard to tell. My daughter is there to win an experience of being an equal with her mother, because both of us are no novice non-call-up players moving pieces around the board. And I now understand that for my sensation focus, kinesthetic learner, everything is about the experience and she is winning. And if that's the, if that's the one, most important thing that I want to remember from this time when she's six and she's driving me nuts, it's that everything is about the experience and she is winning. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, next up we have Kristen Alley Carver. I'm sorry. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm honored to be here. This has been so powerful and surprising, and I didn't know what to expect, so I was trying to hide. Um, but I'm happy, so happy to share and honored to share. So this piece is called Empty Plate. Um, I'm just going to read from my writing about it. Um, and I'm surprisingly, I mean, not surprisingly emotional from everything I've heard previously. So um, not long ago, I was heading out the door to a church meeting and I wanted to feel spiritually ready, but I felt empty. Months before I had taken on a new job full of possibilities, a new ball to my juggling act, balancing discipleship, being a wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend. Maintaining a house, yard, you get it. My lack of preparation set off what had become a standard response of shame and unworthiness. I had nothing to give, no minutes between the things. What more could I do? What should I eliminate? If I have nothing to add, nothing to give, why am I here? I don't belong in a space surrounded by people who have it all together, who keep their balls in the air with grace and poise. I know, I know, it's a lie. I walked into the meeting empty, drained, ashamed. I did not belong. The reason I kept, I keep coming back, which continues to surprise me, is that I left so much lighter. I felt fed. I broke bread with, and I broke bread with, and made connections with beautiful strangers. All the good things are good, but why do we perpetuate prerequisites for coming to His table? Jesus taught, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. 
he asks that we come. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kristen. I love the artist statement with it as well and sharing your experiences with that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you to our presenters. I'm so excited for us to be able to have the physical um, copy of the magazine in our hands. Um, so we um, uh, pay our artists and writers and they have the opportunity to accept the honorariums, which we love, or they also have the opportunity to um, to donate their stipends to one of the Expo 2 community funds. And so from this round of writers and artists, we just want to celebrate. Thank you for those who did um, donate back their um, honorariums. So some went to $440 went to the editors who donated their stipends. $240 went to scholarships for BIPOC artists and writers. $80 went to the needs-based LGBTQ plus and or BIPOC scholarships to help people attend the retreat. And then $20 toward a collaborative art commission. So thank you so much for those who gave back in that way. Um, the best way to support us is to subscribe. Um, so all contributors tonight will receive a complimentary copy of the, the issue. Um, but if you want to keep getting the magazine, um, you'll need to subscribe. July 15th is the deadline to be able to get the summer issue. So from the people who spoke tonight, um, you need to subscribe by July 15th. Um, so subscribe online. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, we have Patreon. Um, that's another way to help support our organization. The joke is the revolution will not be funded, but we do need funding to help pay for stuff like the website or Zoom, other things. Um, another way that to connect with us is come to the retreat. Uh, it's September 15th through 17th. It's in New Hampshire. Um, you can register online. I'm happy to answer any questions about that. Um, and there are scholarships available. Um, thank you. We don't have really time for Q&A. Uh, we kind of do if people want to stay on, on the call. let's um, We can stay on for a few more minutes. If people need to leave, I give you permission to leave. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, so grateful for all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And, and so great to see you. And uh, Rocio, are you still here? No, no need to share, but just we wanted to really welcome. We have a we have a new art editor on our team, and just killing it with this this first issue. So no pressure to say anything. But thanks for being here. So for those who do want to stay on, I'm happy to open up for to questions, and I can help moderate it. Any questions we have for the different artists or writers? Also, I think this is our biggest turnout yet, with like over 40 participants. So thank you for inviting people, and and for those who are able to present tonight. Yeah, what a night. I guess I have I have a question for anyone who wants to answer just to just to start and no pressure. Um, I know we're just hanging out for a little bit, but um, we had such a response from this prompt, um, maybe because it's just so real and just so honest. I mean, just thinking of Josie and, you know, just a loss of just two days ago. And there's just something so immediate and urgent about this. Um, I'm curious to hear people's like processes of like seeing the call or responding to the call. And some people made things specific for the call, um, clearly just in the way it's framed and just, Yeah that act of creation I guess I can go first um uh my husband dealt with a pretty impressive vitamin d deficiency and the multi-year depression he wasn't in the strongest mental health before then but that pretty much that made a lot of really bad situations. And we're about 
three years into getting through that and he's stable and we're all better but unfortunately if you've been through a deep enough loss it takes years to get to the point of that that you start counting what you actually lost like the everything stabilized so now you can miss the silverware I guess <laughs> and like we're doing our homework and we're making the changes and stuff and I just I couldn't I couldn't count the silverware that I'd lost anymore I was like dang it I'm gonna I'm going to write because I need to write something but it can't be about loss and only loss because I can't do that anymore. I, I know what I lost and it's a whole lot more than I thought we had. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll find someone who can show me, show me an example. And then I was watching my daughter and my big hearted, big words daughter. And I'm like, oh, she's so big and so scary and so fun and so authentic. And she is literally presenting me a case study on losing. <laughs> Yeah. I love, I love your, your fresh take on it. Yeah. And I think sometimes like staring directly at the thing, it's almost like trying to stare a horse in the eye. Like sometimes, you know, when we make things, we have to sidestep um, to get to something. So I, 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 re I really love the angle that you took in your piece. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. And I, yeah, I, I think it's from a, a John Kabat-Zinn, wherever you go, there you are there's a line of about like your child becomes your your like yogi mentor sensei just the, like they find your weakness so it's just like it, it's like having like that daily meditation teacher of like how do I not overreact like how did you poke me there in that way that made me so nervous so I've been experiencing that her older sister does that like her older sister finds like that one chink in the armor I've been perfecting is like boink boink Boink, let me get a bigger needle. Boink, boink, boink. Um, Rachel and I, as we were, yeah, as we uh, were getting, reading through the submissions, just as interesting kind of the pairings of like foster parenting or like the foster care system on the two different sides, multiple cancer stories. It's interesting, like finding these, um, these different themes. Yeah, lots of, lots of pieces. on the theme as well I just love that in the cover there's a subtle nod to even ecological loss right. with the Great Salt Lake um I'm here in Utah and you know that's been so on top of mind this year and the piece is obviously about identity and place and has the biblical and so much else but it's also there's just that like tiny little piece the piece is cropped it's actually a horizontal piece mm -hmm. um but even in cropping it for the cover, we were just careful to keep a little bit like of that horizon that's very distinctly kind of Great Salt Lake, salt flats looking. Um, so I feel like there's even a nod to our environment as we think about loss and grief. And I need to put that in the letter, like sneak that in. Thanks for reminding me of that. It's true. It, it just hits on so much. Yeah. And Melissa, thank you for writing too about the like, identities and what's expected of you versus like what you've had to like parse out and reclaim and thank you so much for those words yeah I want to hear more about the mask that you just linked to that was so it's so beautiful 
Um, thank you. So um, that mask, I made art therapy. Mm. And so it's supposed to be reflective of like my soul on the fact that all my life, I've always wanted different masks to make people happy. And if you notice in the mask that the, there's no mouth, it's, it's, it's void of having a voice. And so I feel like uh, through my writing career and all the things I've got to accomplish, I've reclaimed that voice. And so that, that's how the mask is shattering for me. Um, and then in terms of what the, the invitation meant, uh, at first I, I did not want to write about this because I feel like every single time I get invited to write, not just in this form, but it's always about something sad or mournful or letting go. And so I really tried to encompass the fact that there was, there was actually indeed joy in the journey and loss is, is part of that, of that space and that grace that helps us heal and become uh, a more profound person. So that's, that's the takeaway I got from the message that was put out on the ask in the first place. Thank you, Melissa. That's really beautiful. The joy that can be there on the other side. Would you feel comfortable if I included it um, on the digital issue? Like, what, like we have the print, but then like the digital, we've got some some good stuff. And so I'd, I'd love to put that in your digital piece. Are you open to that? Because I, I love the visual. Oh, yes, I'd be open to that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Art, very cool. Okay. Any, any final thoughts or feels? Can I just ask a question of the editors? <laughs> um, while listening to all these, it just felt like so many of the poems and the artwork and the essays like echoed off of each other in such beautiful ways. And I was like kind of blown away from the beginning at how many like common threads there were in them. And I'm wondering like, as you're reading submissions, how much are you looking at the indiv individual pieces and how much are you thinking about the like magazine as a whole and how they will speak to each other? Like the, how it, it feels like making a mixtape in a way and like deciding on which pieces to include. So I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I just am well, the mixtape imagery. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, on we um, yeah, tapes don't exist anymore. I I understand. <laughs> it's great, honestly, and maybe it's um maybe it's just something about the prompt or just like the amount of authenticity people were willing to write. But we did not. Um, I think this is one of our first times we've never had to turn away any submissions. So this was just pure universe magic of people just writing things right from the heart and and when we lay it out in the magazine you know when Rosie does all of her her magic we try to like you know stagger different things and but yeah it's it's really quite astonishing how they're in conversation implicitly right yeah creating the call so the ask, asking the question if you ask they will tell and a lot of people had um so like I shared just like interesting like which ones like 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 service level you're like oh that's similar but then like such different experiences within it too mm -hmm. uh, yeah and the editing too like yeah people just really kind of lean in just at every piece is just you know it's great and there was one there was one thing I was just like we don't have an essay on divorce Carolyn. like we need an essay on divorce and just like someone magically posted on their Facebook timeline that Caroline was friends with and was like why hello <laughs> like will you expand on this and it's gonna be in the, in the essay you know so it's like Truly, yeah, just kind of make it tonight. But yeah, so yeah, so thanks, universe. So yeah, thank you, everyone. What? Yeah, I'm. I'm just feeling very squishy now.
very uplifted. Dude, and- this was really wonderful. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone. This felt like a particularly powerful yeah. get together. Oh, this is going to be, yeah. And I'm so excited for y'all to like hold it in your hands too, but there's something hey, did about you put the, in the chat that you're going to the retreat. I am. Yeah. Yes. Anyone I'm else? So I'll put the retreat I've never link. been. I'll put the retreat link again. It really, yeah. It would be so wonderful to see folks there. I'm going to put a magical place to be. Yeah. Yeah. This is the place. I need to that magic there. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Be well. Good luck. Be well, just so all the feelings. They're all good. My love is holding out for Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thank you, team. Okay.